Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, "Why do people say uh, who do people say I am?" They, replay, they replied, "Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets." But what about you? He asked, "Who do you say I am?" Peter answered, "You are the Messiah." And then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. So we believe in a, a restoration rule. We believe in expository preaching, and so that's to come to a text in Scripture and expose what the scripture says because we believe the scripture is the very word of God and man doesn't live by bread alone but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so what's key about expository preaching is that we're exposing, like in today's passage, the Christ. What our souls long for, hunger for, and thirst for more than anything is the Christ. We hunger for something only the gospel can feed us. And so if we are not fed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, our souls will become restless, our souls will become irritable, our souls will not love our neighbor as we should, and as we spoke of last week, we will treasure lesser things than Christ, and our our lives will find themselves on unsatisfying journeys when we find the pot of gold at the end because it will not satisfy our soul. And so as we get to the scripture today, and this text today, and as what Mike just read The reason we are continually preaching about Jesus the Christ is because when we hear about Jesus, when we experience Jesus, when by faith we see the work of Jesus, our souls become satisfied and we receive great joy and that joy overflows to others and that joy overflows with worship to God. When we preach about Christ, what we really are preaching is to your affections. Are you affectionate for Jesus? Are you affectionate for Christ? Is he of greatest value to you? Who do you say he is? And so today I pray with this text that Christ becomes bigger. He becomes deeper. He's more satisfying to you because we can never, like this this sermon series called Exploring Mark, which really is exploring Christ. You know, the gospel, the Christ is like a diamond. It just has so many facets that you can't even examine it at all. But as you you pull apart little by little, you see the beauty of it, and it fills the soul. So today I want to ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? Some of you say, I've been in church my whole life. That's not who I said Jesus is. Maybe you are identifying Jesus right, but I really want us to evaluate our heart deeper today. Do we say that he is the Christ? A recent Barna poll in America, um, they asked a bunch of Americans about Jesus. Who do they say Jesus is? 56% of Americans believe that Jesus was the divine son of God. About 25% believe he was only a spiritual leader like Muhammad or Buddha. And about 18% say they are not sure if Jesus was divine. So you see, when you ask the American population, there's not unanimity on who people say Jesus is. Now, as you get to the younger generation, as you get to millennials, the number drops even more with people thinking that Jesus is the Son of God. And so those numbers change to only 48% of people asked and polled would say they believe Jesus is the Son of God. 
35%, and this is very important for our text today, believe that Jesus was only a spiritual teacher like Muhammad or Buddha. And around the same are still working through it. About 17% are working through if they believe Jesus is divine, if they believe he is the son of God, if they believe he is the Christ. So we see in the text today when Jesus asks, many people have many different opinions of who Jesus is. And today I want you to ask yourself, who do you believe the Christ is? Because how we identify someone affects directly how we relate to them. How we identify someone directly relates to how we treat them. And I'll use a lighter story in line with what Mike just said with his testimony. When I meet people, they don't rightly identify me away, right away as a pastor. Right? They usually don't, I don't know if it's the thick, thick Boston accent I have. I don't know if it's the Bob Ross I sh- wear, shirt I wear occasionally. I don't know if it's my hyper-competitiveness and over-aggression in sporting events. I don't know what it is. But Mike, I want to thank you for loving me and everyone in this church. The car's not fully polished. We all know that. And it comes out in being overly competitive in my sporting events. So if you love me, you love me. If you don't, I understand. (laughs) But when people are talking to me and they don't realize I'm a pastor, they relate to me totally different. There's multiple cuss words, okay? So they're just throwing out beep, beep. Everything's censored, you know, beep, 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 beep. And there's crude talk and there's impure speech and there's all this stuff going on. And I never say anything because I get a kick out of it. And then the conversation might get to what I do for a living or who I am, and I'll say a pastor. And you should see their face (laughs) when they realize I'm a pastor. I was in Storyland and... I don't ride the twirly rides because it ruins the day I'll throw up everywhere. And so my family was on one of these twirly rides. I'm sitting on a bench and a guy began to talk to me and he's throwing out some beautiful language, beautiful stories. I'm just rolling with it. And I don't judge. I don't judge. Found out I was a pastor. This poor guy, I think it ruined his day at Storyland. He just kept apologizing. So people just keep apologizing. I'm like, you don't have to apologize. Poor guy's walking around. I'm sorry, man. I'm sorry. Once they realize who I, like what I do for a living, you know, a man of the cloth, their whole way they relate to me changes. They actually become who they're really not. <laughs> it's like pristine, like, what do you say? They're speaking in old English to me. And so I'm like, how we see people is how we relate to them. And so that's a lighter story. How we see Jesus in a much deeper, worshipful um, way directly affects how we relate to him. If we see him as the Christ, the Son of living God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Chosen One of God, we're going to adore him and worship him, and we're going to live our whole lives for him. How we see him affects everything. What we treasure, how we live, how we speak, how we love, what we sacrifice for, how we forgive, how we relate to humanity, and how we relate to God. So this is a major question that we're asking And we're answering today in this text. So there's two things we're going to focus on today. And we'll work out some application from that. Who did people say Jesus was during his time on earth? And who did Peter 
say Jesus was. So who did people say Jesus was during his time on earth? And who did Peter say Jesus was during his time on earth? Let's begin with the kind of setting the sage, because when you ask questions, the setting is important, is it not? Not many people ask, like a husband doesn't, or a, um, a boyfriend doesn't ask a girlfriend to marry him by a dumpster. Just doesn't happen. Beautiful setting of the dumpster. Usually they pick beautiful scenery by the ocean. Or, you know, they're on top of the tallest building in Boston just snapping a selfie. Settings matter when we ask questions, especially when they're very important questions. We need to understand the setting of this text when Jesus asked this question because it's very important. There in, and Mike, you did a pretty good job of saying this word. I had to look it up on YouTube how to pronounce it. I'm still probably going to get it wrong, but Caesarea Philippi was the place he asked his disciples this deep question. That has great significance because this town had been dedicated to the glory of Caesar. There had been temples built in honor to Caesar. All the art and architecture showed off the glory of Rome. It was built by the Herods who were considered sellouts of the Jewish people to show off the glory of another. So Jesus is about to ask a question and present himself as the ultimate king of a new kingdom in a setting that is showing everything else, that everything else in the world is different. Jesus is about to reveal who he is or ask a question that reveals who he is in a setting where all of culture and all society is praying the glory of Caesar in another kingdom that is the dominant world power. Does that make sense, guys? So when he reveals this, it's going to be in this setting, and that will happen many times in your life. We're living in a world that is proclaiming that other things are glorious. We're living in a world that are proclaiming that other things are of greatest value. When we preach of the kingdom of God, it's something totally hidden and subversive, like salt on the earth, something underneath but more powerful, where Jesus is king, and Jesus reigns, and Jesus shows off your glory. Someone famously once said, we don't see God because we don't look low enough. We're looking in the glory of man's institutions. And you have to look at the glory of the kingdom of God to really find Christ. That's why everything was totally different. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. If someone slaps you on one cheek, you turn the other. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with them too. These things are important because in that you see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of the Christ. So the setting was huge. And why Jesus asked the question, I think Matthew Henry, he's one of the only guys that wrote a commentary on the whole Bible. You take the gospel serious when you write a commentary on the whole Bible. This guy, God bless him and thank you Jesus for him, said Christ asked not so he would be informed but that they may observe it and inform one another. You ever ask a question you already know the answer for because you need someone to work through it and think through their thoughts of why they're doing what they're doing and why what's happening is happening? This is what Jesus is doing. He already knows who he is. He wants the disciples to work through what people are saying who he is. And this is an important note. (coughs) They say all good things about Jesus, all the people. And this is the same with culture today. You will find very little people that have a derogatory thing to say about Jesus. The problem is they misidentify them, misidentify him. They said he was John the Baptist. They said he was Elijah. They said he was one of the prophets. Those are all fantastic, powerful things. 
But they fall dramatically short of the true identity of Jesus. It is not a right classification to say Jesus was a good spiritual teacher. It falls dramatically short. And as you go through all the major world religions, you will find that they misidentify Jesus. But many of them put him in a good place. So if you look at the Muslim faith, Jesus is in a prominent place. Jesus is considered a powerful prophet, but not the Christ. Many Jewish people think Jesus was a great spiritual teacher, but not the Christ. The Eastern religions of Hinduism and Buddhism think that Jesus kind of reached that ultimate nirvana. He was one of the sages, or one of the people who reached that ultimate or obtain that divine spark that they speak of in Eastern religions. But they don't think he is the Christ. So they give all these powerful, prominent identifications of Jesus, but they fall dramatically short. Jesus wasn't a prophet. He was not a prophet proclaiming of a one to come. He was the one that the prophets were prophesying about who did come. Amen? He was not... Just a good spiritual teacher. When you identify the Son of God as just a good spiritual teacher, it is an insult. Because he's the fine Son of God who always has been, who is the author of love, who all things were made through him, who saved and rescued our soul, who is the greatest treasure. And to see him is to see the power of God and to see God himself. That's the right identification of Jesus He's the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the rescuer of the world. And I need us to hear that with that first point, that people are identifying him, but even though they might be identifying him in standards that the world would say was good and maybe even powerful, they fell dramatically short of who he was. He was the Christ. And the second point is, who did Peter say Jesus was? Because Peter rightly identifies him. You see a turn in the Gospel of Mark. All of a sudden you see Jesus identified as the Christ by Peter, and then you see the rest of this narrative, the book, the gospel, just showing off Jesus as the Christ. Because people had to give account to their own souls and mind and thought of who Jesus was. Just in this chapter alone, he fed 4,000 people miraculously. He just healed a blind man previously in the text. When you look all the way through, he's casting out demons, he's raising people from the dead, he's healing people with great infirmities. And people say, who is this? And then you have Peter, which is very important, because the Gospel of Mark is an eyewitness account. An eyewitness account of Peter, who used Mark as a scribe. Okay, do you guys understand that? So Peter, this Gospel of Mark, is Peter's testimony of seeing the Christ. And so Peter, with the eyewitness of the healings, the exorcisms, the teachings, and miracles, he gives the powerful answer. The first time we hear this, he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, this is one of the most important um, words in the Christian vocabulary. If someone asked you, what does Christ mean? It's important that we can give an answer because it not only affects evangelistic efforts, it affects our deep understanding of God and who He is. Many people wrongly believe, and I understand, that it was Jesus' last name. Like Steve McNeil or Roger Colburn. 
Like Jesus Christ, that's how he rolls. That was his last name. Christ was an office. It was a title. It was something that the people of God were waiting for. The word comes from the Greek Christos. And Christos means anointed one, chosen one. The Hebrew equivalent would be Messiah. Okay? So I want us to go deeper on that word. The chosen one, the anointed one, the Messiah. What does it mean that Jesus was the Christ? And so first it means he's the anointed one. It's hard in our culture because so, we don't see people getting anointed all the time. What's the last time you saw someone anointed in the streets? It just doesn't happen. There are people with just oil throwing them on people. It just doesn't happen. But to understand anointing in the Hebrew context with the people of God is to understand something very unique, something that's set someone apart for a certain calling, a certain office, kind of a one-of-a-kind thing going on. Like when many people know the story of David if you grew up in a church, that David, when he was a young man, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel um, to be the next king of Israel. Now, when we think of anointing, we might think someone's hitting a little oil bottle and making something, right? Did pour this anointing. Like when David was anointing, anointed, they poured that anointing oil all over him, pouring down. He was 17. He had to have a beard. Pouring down his beard, rolling over his whole body, set him apart for the calling of being king. So you were anointed for a few things, to be king, to be priest, to be prophet. Those were set apart with anointings. I want us to focus today on Jesus as king, as the king of kings. Jesus was set apart to be the king that would rule all kings. There's, um, I'm going to read a scripture to you in a second, but I was listening to someone who I pray for regularly. They're in public debate. They're in the intellectual debate. And you know how Jesus says someone is so close to the kingdom of God, like they're almost there? I feel like he's so close to the kingdom of God, but he shared a dream he had. Because he's working through things of God and he's working through different stuff. And in the dream, he saw all these great kings rising out of the grave. Think of like, maybe we could throw like King Arthur, all these great kings of history, people would say. Some mythological, some real, coming out of the grave. He saw them rising. And he was caught. He was just like, this is amazing. Then all of a sudden, Jesus stepped out of the grave. And all these great kings of history said in his dream, they just bowed. And Jesus stood there set apart. And all these kings bowed before Jesus. And he said it was so impactful to him. Now, I don't think he interpreted it right. I think the interpretation was different. But that dream stuck with me when thinking of Jesus. All the kings of history, all the rulers of the world, all the people who had great power, all those people we say magnificent, bow before the King of Kings, the Anointed One, the Christ, the Messiah. Amen? That's important. To treasure Christ, we can understand this. I want to read you something in Revelation because we need to get this full picture of Jesus as King. And Jesus is the King of the cross. He showed us something beautiful with compassion, with beauty, with tenderness of laying his life down on a cross. I actually read yesterday a wonderful thing. We always look at the cross as a passive act of love. This man said, the cross was the most aggressive act of love the world has ever seen. And I thought that was a wonderful depiction of the work of Jesus. But I want to read you this from 1911 through 16 when we see Jesus in all of his power. It says, and on his robe and on his thighs, he had a name written, 
King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw heaven open, behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. That's a depiction of the King of Kings. When Peter is saying he's the Christ, they understand he is a king that will, of course, lay down, but they understand he is a king that rules and is sovereign over everything. When Jesus has said he is the Christ, he is the king, he's the sovereign over everything on this earth. We need to understand that because we live in a broken world where sometimes we think that Jesus is not in control. How can this war be going on? How can this loss happen? How can this person reject me? How could I feel like this? How could it be like this? But we need to know that Christ is the king who is still in control of every bird that falls from the sky. Amen? He's the king. When all is said and done, we will say that the king ruled in justice, the Christ king, the king of kings. I can live assured in the Christ with that. To understand Jesus as the Christ is to understand him as the king of kings, the anointed one. Secondly, the chosen one. Jesus is the only one that is the Christ. He's the only one. He will ever, the only one will ever be the Christ, worshiped as a Christ, and lifted up as the Christ. That's why the scriptures warn constantly, beware of antichrist. People who lift themselves up as saviors to be worshipped and follow and follow things contrary to the Christ. There are many antichrists, they even spoke to Christians, that go up and lift themselves up as chosen ones of God, but lead many sheep astray. That's very important. He's the chosen one. The glory of Christ is at the center of all things. I, I think important to this is to understand this word only begotten when we say chosen one, only begotten. And Michael Heiser has a quick definition of this. The term literally means only begotten, and please hear this, it's so important to treasure in Christ, the one of a kind or unique without any connotation of being created. Jesus was never created. He's the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who was incarnated into the world, the one of a kind Christ. You will notice, and it's just my assumption, that Satan and all his evil, one of his great falls was he couldn't deal with the fact that he wasn't one of a kind. And when we're in our flesh in the deep, deepest ways, we will want people to recognize us as one of a kind. There's no one like me. I'm special. You'll see many of the identity problems that are going on in our culture are people trying to be one of a kind. Just keep creating more categories of identity to say, I'm special, I'm different, don't try to put me in that category. But we will find much joy when we realize we're not one of a kind. There's millions, maybe billions like us who needed to put their faith in Christ because they were filthy sinners like you and me. There's so much freedom in saying, I'm just like everyone else. And some people argue in theory, that's why in the Ark of the Covenant, you have two angels. They, they made them look exactly alike, looking at exactly each other, so they were reminded there's always someone who's just like me. I'm not unique. I'm not one of a kind. I'm not just this special thing. That 
title is for Christ alone. Does that make sense, guys? The one-of-a-kind chosen one. No one like the Christ. And that's the most beautiful thing we can ever realize, that I'm just one of the redeemed. I'm just one of the children of God. That's where humility comes in. I don't have to be special. I don't have to be better. I don't have to be the best. I don't have to prove myself. I can just be a redeemed child of God in the love and arms of my father. And my big brother Jesus can be my redeemer for all of eternity. That's a wonderful, special thing. There's freedom there. With the spirit of God there is, there is liberty. And the spirit of God, his work is to lift up the Christ. If you want to know where the Holy Spirit is, where Jesus is lifted up, that's where the Holy Spirit thrives and lives and his presence abides. He's the Messiah. Jesus is the Savior and Deliverer. When Peter is saying Jesus is the Christ, he is saying he is Savior. He's there to rescue them. He knows that even in Genesis 3, when the prophecy went before Genesis 3.15, that there will be one who will come and crush the head of Satan and set us free, that this was the Christ who would set us free. We need rescue, don't we? We need the rescue that results in the justification we put faith in Jesus, but I'm sure you'll test with me that I need rescue every day. I need rescue every day. Jesus is constantly rescuing us because he he gives that constant hope of the gospel. He's the Messiah. See, they understood that Christ would save the people of Israel, the Jewish people, but God would reveal that he would be the savior of the world. This is unbelievable. To anyone who put their faith in this Christ, they would be reconciled with God. They would be forgiven of their sins. They would be saved at the moment and they would experience eternal life starting at that moment because they would never taste death. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. To understand the Christ is to understand that Jesus is Messiah and Savior and Rescuer. So I just want to give you a little application coming off that text because we just kind of exposed what that text says. The first thing is I want to bring it back to that question. Who do you say Jesus is? The answer to that question is the most important answer you or I will ever give. I went to Rockport with a man about two years ago. It's one of my favorite spots. You get in Rockport, you eat a little of that candy, you see a little lot, the waves hit, you feel like it's a little bit of heaven on earth. But this day was set apart for evangelizing. So this man had a dilemma. He identified as a Christian, but his wife identified as a Muslim. So he had two children, and he had this big thing he was working through as a dad and as a husband of how do I navigate this? And so it got real dramatic because we're standing on a wall and waves are hitting. (laughs) Like this real dramatic scene. I didn't plan it. Wind's blowing, waves hitting, and I'm preaching. Just ridiculous. And I'm saying to him, this is not a light thing. Who you and your family identify the Christ as has eternal implications. It has present implications. How we identify the Christ, if done rightly, we're reconciled to God. If done wrongly, we continue to be separated from God. If done rightly, we're forgiven of our sins. If done wrongly, we stay under the wrath of God for our sins. If done rightly, identifying the Christ, heaven and a new heaven and earth with the redeemed people of God 
is realize if not in eternity separated from God and being punished for our sins. This is important. And I, I talked to this man and now he has that truth of scriptures to navigate himself and make his decisions with his family. But if we love people, we will share that. But to this day, he thanks me and says, Joey, thank you for that conversation. I don't know what he's going to do with it. But it's important that we know what we say and we know that the people who God puts in our lives, that they are presented with an opportunity of the gospel to believe in the Christ. Because we're filled in a, with a world that has many different opinions on who Jesus is. And it's only by the grace of God that any of us see him as the Christ. Amen. Secondly, there's this funny question we have to answer when Jesus keeps doing powerful things and telling people to say nothing. Does that catch anyone off guard? Right at the beginning of Mark, one of the first powerful things, he casts out a demon and he says to the demon, shut up. Because the demon was about to say, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And he says, shut up. You go through the whole book, he just tells people, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything, don't say anything. Right after Peter says, you're the Christ, he said, Peter, keep it down. Why is this? Why is this? I believe part of it is timing, of course. You'll see when even, you know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, she's working. You know, when Jesus is your son, you've got to work the system a little bit. No, you're at a wedding, the wine's out, you ask him, listen, can we fire it up for a second round? What did Jesus say to Mary? He said, it's not my time yet. If I do this, this is going to accelerate people seeing who I am. But our love for his mom, as all good sons should do, he says, I'll do it, mom. You see, through the whole time, Jesus is very concerned with timing. So that's why he's telling people in a way, don't say anything. My time has not yet come. You hear that language. But then you see him before the cross, and a beautiful thing happens. The powerful words, the time has come. The time has come. Timing is so important in life, guys. It's one of the hardest things. That's why patience is such a virtue. And why the Proverbs say, wait for the plan of God to unfold. Wait for the plan of God to unfold. Don't get your hands in there. Let Jesus take it. Put your life in order for his glory. The second reason I think building off of that is people have their, in their mind what Messiah and Savior ought to be what Christ ought to be. And Jesus was rewriting in all of our minds what Christ ought to be. And I was reading yesterday, so it really struck my soul. It said, oftentimes we think that God should be us on cosmic steroids. That Christ should be us on cosmic steroids. But the Christ is totally different. But this Christ would suffer. This Christ would die. This Christ would rise again. This Christ would say, I came not to be served, but to serve. I came down to lay down my life as a ransom for many. I came down to suffer. He needs the time to write the story of the Christ through his life and actions. So even today we have a testimony of Christ. Amen? That timing is so important to my final point. Because Jesus took the time because he let the plan of God the Father unfold in God the Son's life. Because he rewrote what the Christ was, 
Because those disciples saw with their eyes, today we have the scriptures so that we can believe in the Christ. Sometimes we just take for granted because everywhere you go in our nation, there's Bibles in 25 different translations. They're falling out the pews. The kids are ripping out right marker on them. We don't realize how precious it is, the testimony of the Christ. And what I hear from many people nowadays, especially in the RR family lately, and I want to come alongside you as a shepherd is, I need to be in the Word of God. I'm not in the Word of God like I should be. And people are saying that not for some duty to check off so we can look more religious, but because to be in the Word of God, to be in like the Gospel of Mark, is to treasure the Christ and know the Christ. And when you know the Christ, your life is changed. Amen? You cannot dwell in the testimony of Christ and be born of the Spirit of God and not be eternally changed every moment. When I hear, we need to hear, all of us need to hear these words every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, throw a few snacks in. We need to hear that Christ loves you, that he loves me. We need to hear that Christ has forgiven us, amen? And we hear that through the testimony of Christ. We need to hear that Christ rose again. And that death has no sting for those who are in Christ. We need that hear from the Christ that he has plans for our life. We need hear, and we'll talk about this more next week, that Christ has ordained suffering for our lives, but his hand will guide us and make it for good in our life. Amen? That's only heard in the testimony of the scriptures. And I thank Jesus. Because Jesus, the way God ordained it was for Jesus never wrote a book I mean of course in a way he wrote the Bible of course you guys hear what I'm saying but he allowed people around him to witness and through the power of the spirit take down that testimony so we have a testimony of the Christ so please are our family we need to be in that word of God not to gain our salvation not to look more self-righteous not to say we have all those things together those are all in the kingdom of ego We need to interact with the scriptures because we need to know the Christ so that we treasure the Christ and so that we're able to love others, amen? Like Jesus. So Restoration Road, let's cherish the scripture because in doing so, we're cherishing Christ. By reading the scripture, we know that he's the anointed one, he's the chosen one, he's the Messiah, he's the Christ. Let's pray.